0: Welcome to Watershed's March podcast. My name is Mark Cosgrove, cinema curator here at Watershed, and joined, as usual, by Thea Berry, who's the uh, cinema producer. If you're of a certain age, that music, which was Steppenwolf's The Pusher, George Baker's selection, Little Green Bag, you will be thinking, I'm sure, of Dennis Hopper, Peter Fonda, Motorcycling Across America in Search of a Dream, or you'll see a bunch of dark-shaded, sharp-suited guys walking down a high street, looking very cool, uh, because they are now inextricably linked with the films Easy Rider for Wolf*, and Little Green Bag from Quentin Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs, and really illustrate, I think, brilliantly how music can be used in films to create very iconic, um, what, what have become iconic, and actually era-defining uh, films. So, you know, Easy Rider very much of the 60s, Quentin Tarantino from the 90s, the, the early 90s. And this is part of FILMIC, which our annual exploration and presentation of the creative connections across film and music, an annual strand in partnership with St. George's and Colston Hall in Bristol. And working with those two partners, who are music venues, um, it's a great opportunity to just explore, as I say, uh, how some of the aspects of how music and moving image are kind of inextricably linked. They've always, of course, been linked because, you know, we talk about silent films. Hey folks, they were never silent. Um, there was always music of some sort that was happening. But what I wanted to do um, in the season, uh, the brunch season in March, is, is look at what were kind of really era-defining soundtracks, um, and it started with it started with Easy Rider, that first one that um, we just heard. That was the first time that pre-recorded music had been used in film. Really? Yeah. So what it was was existing music, you know, that that um, had been made by musicians, bands, and there was no other score. It was all of those chosen tracks, um, and of course they're all iconic tracks of um, this, that 60s era. As I say, Steppenwolf, you, you had the band, you had Roger McGuinn. Um, so there were, they were music of a generation, and of course of that hippie generation. And Hopper and Fonda wanted to connect. I don't think they, they consciously thought, oh, I want to connect with. But th- that music was part of the culture and this was a vi- and part of the counterculture, and this was a film that was of the counterculture. And it changed everything at the time, but the music, the connection with the music, and just luxury, luxuriating in the, the full tracks of, as I say, Steppenwolf, Born to be Wild, uh, The Pusher. Um, and similarly, this is what uh, Quentin Tarantino did, differently, mm-hmm. but with Reservoir Dogs, is he, he seemed to um, archive, I mean, had you, had anybody, Ever heard of George Baker selection? <laughs> before Little Green Bag? I don't no, I, I, I no, certainly, probably not. No, no. no I mean this is, this is the thing. And I think you know, what 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 Tarantino did was was, was as well as sort of um, have this encyclopedic knowledge of of film. He also had a cyclopedic knowledge of popular music. Mm. So you just have to think about the Dick Dale stuff in, in pulp fiction. It really, really connects and gives the films um, his films a real dynamic, which we saw there with, with Reservoir Dogs and the famous, um, infamous, I guess, scene with Steeler, Steeler's Wheel stuck in the middle with you, which, savage scene of yes. the, 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 the famous, um, infamous, as I say, ear cutting, but counterpointed by this pop track, which also seemed to speak to the predicament yeah, of stuck in the, stuck in the middle with you.
1: That's, you know, one of the really great things about you know, Tarantino, especially his early earlier works, is the soundtrack that he that he builds that really gives it a very very distinctive feel. Yeah. Um, and again, that encyclopedic knowledge of film and music is really quite impressive.
0: Yeah. So the other other films in the the season, um, the great thing actually about um, Easy Rider, uh, just going back to that for a second, is, is there's a, a new print of it. It's a restoration of it. Okay. So, you can think about oh he's right that's that old film about old hippies. Uh, I I um, was privileged to see it in um, the new print in Il di Trovato in Bologna, and the, it was screened in the Piazza Maggiore, five thousand people, huge screen, great sound mm-hmm. system, watching, uh, and that film just came alive again in that moment, and the, it, it was just well I forgot I'd forgotten how experimental it is visually. But then with the music as well, it, it, it's just as powerful now. I mean, it's, it's, there's a pessimism in it now, I have to say, which I, I hadn't quite caught the first time round. Right? But um, it, it, there's no doubt that that link of popular music of the time, um, and as I say, no other um, music, there's no composer, you know, asked to compose music for it. There's no, it's all pre-re- pre-recorded existing pop music um, from the time. Just a little anecdote for those Bob Dylan fans out there. If you're a Bob Dylan fan, you'll actually know the story. But anyway, um, is is that you know Dylan is obviously one of the iconic figures of the time of the era. Um, Dennis Hopper uh, asked him, "Look, can can you do a piece of music? You know, can we both use and can you write something for the film, uh, unique for the film?" Dylan actually had a big problem with the ending of the film. He he. he and he said, "No, I, I don't, I don't buy the end. You know, I don't buy the direction that this film that is going in." Uh, but he wrote down on a napkin, as you do, "The river flows. It flows to the sea. Wherever that river flows, that's where I want to be." And and said to Hopper, "Give that to Roger McGuinn, and he'll know what to do with it." Uh, Roger McGuinn subsequently wrote the ballad of Easy Rider, which concludes the film, uh, and also Roger McGuinn from the Birds. Does a brilliant version of Dylan's um, "It's All Right, Ma, I'm Only Bleeding," so they didn't get Dylan, but they got uh, they got they well, at got least a, a bit of him. They got, <laughs> they got they got they got a bit they got a bit of the '60s icon in there as well. Mm. Um, but other films in the in the season uh, include um, "Saturday Night Fever," yeah. which brought John Travolta to great prominence. That is it, a
1: soundtrack that I know I haven't even seen the film. And I know that soundtrack inside out.
0: You're staying alive. Yeah. BGS. You're 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 already on the dance floor. Exactly. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah uh, it's one that really, um, from like my, my parents growing up, was always on. From them running orchestras, and we always used to. It was like a staple yeah. that we used to do every year. So yeah, I know the words to all the songs, but I actually don't know any, really a lot about the plot of the film. And, and
0: the film, the films, the film is really great. Um, it's 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 part of that. So 70s New York, the uh, films of that, that were coming out at the time. Um, I mean, a bit like Taxi Driver. Obviously, a different, different milieu than Taxi Driver. But mm. really, um, w- when you watch them now, they're like documentaries of the period. They capture the the city as it was. Obviously, then it's very much about working class because um, John Travol- John Travolta is a working class white guy, uh, Hispanic who, um, the way in which he escapes is through um, the music of the time. And that music was um, disco, uh, which was both uh, multicultural and it was it was gay as well as um, heterosexual. Mm-hmm. It was a meeting place of community on the dance floor. And, and so it's got a, a message there as well, but a brilliant celebration of, of the music and really was part of getting disco as a, as a genre into kind of wider, wider circulation. And interestingly, another one, that, The Harder They Come, that was shown showing, um, Jimmy Cliff, um, filmed in Jamaica. And again, the harder, the, the harder they come, the harder they fall. You can't know but link those two lines. You can't help but hear a bit of reggae. Um, and that film really mainstreamed, was part of kind of mainstreaming reggae in the sort of late 70s. Uh, and then we conclude with a kind of reverse of films which have taken pre-existing pop music and actually works from uh, what was described by Pete Townsend of The Who as concept album. So there was this album, um, Tommy, that Pete Townsend had written and was wanting to explore narrative, I guess, through music so that all the songs were connected in some way to, rather than being individual songs on the album, um, were actually an exploration of a character through a whole load of songs, which lent itself then, of course, to be made into a film. Um, and it was famously made into a film by Ken Russell, the um, visionary maverick British director, Ken Russell. Um, and he has some visionary maverick scenes in, in Tommy, um, which when I saw I'm old enough to have seen it when it was first released, and I'm still scarred by uh, Tina Turner's Acid Queen rendition <laughs> uh, and the, the scenes that... The, the, the treatment that Roger Daltrey, who of course is a deaf, dumb, and blind guy, who then uh, the Acid Queen tries to sort him out with this contraption, uh, which, as I say, <laughs> kind of traumatic to this young teenager at the time. <laughs> um, but then you had, you had Elton John, you know, a huge star, still a huge star, obviously, but a huge star, uh, rising star of um, the time, doing Pinball Wizard with those incredible um, extra large Doc Martens. Uh, just a, a, a fantastic film get, which has been, um, like Easy Rider, has been restored, and you know it's a new print of it, so it's a great opportunity to see the um, new print, but also to hear that fantastic album by The Who, music by The Who, um, and with the other films, um, again, not just seeing the images, but hearing the music and how they work with the images in this season. Filmic film, it runs for couple of months, it's, it's, it runs in March and April. And then in April, um, the season that we've got is uh, exploring the contribution that women have had in uh, music, uh, which is more and more being, being recognized. And I thought it was absolutely um, fantastic that at the Oscars and the BAFTAs um, that happened earlier this year, that The the <laughs> composer, Hilda, got in a tear one for Joker, her, her score for Joker. She did an absolutely incredible score for the the um, the series Chernobyl, and she's she's a classically trained cellist, and she has um, just been doing wonderful scores, and justly um, acknowledged for her work on Joker. She actually shared the studio with Johan Johansson. Oh really? Yeah. Who who in Berlin? Um, who. Uh, again, did incredible scores for films like Sicario and, and um, Arrival. Sadly, um, died a couple of years back. She seems to be very much carrying forward the kind of spirit of, of Johan Johansson. Um, I mean, obviously very distinctive in her own right, but she's a real force now in um, film composition. So, you know, unlike the previous uh, season in March that we've been talking about, this is somebody who's actually composing original scores um, for the film uh, so we'll be screening Joker but also as part of the season looking at um, other women that have been composing Mika Levy
1: Of course, that absolutely incredible score for Monos
0: And and she she's a, another um, person who's really changed the approach to um, scoring films with Under the Skin uh, with those um, haunting strings sounds and sort of very distorted kind of sound that accumulates and really has a a, a life of its own that's working with that's working mm, with the film. So it really creates a kind of edge. Um, so yes, we're, we're screening monos and other the other two films that we're screening are the, the Kingmaker, which is a documentary that just came out last year about Emelda um, Marcos. A
1: Brilliant, brilliant documentary. Quite frightening at this sort of. Um, sort of slightly delusional, uh, matriarchal figure in yeah. the Philippines. And again, a great score by Jocelyn Pook.
0: By Jocelyn Pook, the, mm. the um, London-based, um, British-born um, musician who we've, we've had a um, Filmic in previous years, uh, who famously worked with Stanley Kubrick, which I, you know, she just slips. She just <laughs> slipped that story into the conversation. It's just like you did what? <laughs> um, but yeah, she's she's working on this. She's done the score for this documentary, and then Manchester by the Sea, which was a, a Oscar-winning film from a few years back, and scored by Leslie Barber, who I hadn't realised had done the um, amazing score for for that film. This this season's rounded up by. Uh, documentary that we're screening um, called Making Waves, The Art of Cinematic Sound, which um, we showed previously, but I thought would bring it back for um, this particular season, because if you're interested in the area of sound and film, music and film, and it is a huge, hugely rich area, the more you find out, it, the more you just see its, it's you know, moving image and music are just so inextricably linked. We of course, you know, we know that from Hitchcock and Bernard Herrmann and, you know, Um, Steve Spielberg, John Williams but there are whole teams that are working on the soundtracks and on the scores for films Um, and this documentary really goes into all the different elements of it. it. Apocalypse Now is you know a huge touchstone because that changed sort of everything with Walter Murch. The way in which the sound was mixed in that film is just quite extraordinary. If you remember the opening scenes of now where the helicopter sound changes, mixes with the, the fan sound oh, in, the, in the room and then you you, you you have the flames from the napalm and then you have the doors all mixed in there into this kind of seamless sound. God, what is going on there? And of course, it wasn't. I mean, Walter Murch was the great inf- informing intelligence, but there was a team of people working with. It wasn't just him uh, on the on the mixing desk <laughs> doing things. There was a whole bunch of people that were doing it. And this this documentary yeah, um, really captures those teams. Um, and I, and and what it revealed to me was, I say the amount of women that are working um, and that have been working in this area. So people like Bobby Banks. Who worked on recent, most recently, amazing back catalogue, but most recently worked on um, Dolomite is my name, the Eddie Murphy um, film Queen and Slim, the film that we screened earlier this year, and what what she's doing on the films is um, it's called ADR, which is automatic dialogue replacement. Whoever knew. Uh, with films that we needed or had automatic dialogue replacement. But if you think about it, what's been recorded is dialogue has being recorded like when they're filming it, when they're recording on set. So somebody's got a boom mic that sort microphones are recording it. You've got that. You've then got any sounds that are around. You've then got any music that might be coming in. You've got any mix that's going... All of these things have to be mixed together. But you've got to make sure that people can hear the dialogue. Mm-hmm. You can't hear the dialogue. Uh, you know, so that... So how is it recorded? Is the recording good enough? Is, have we got the sound? Is it, how is it going to be mixed into all? It's a hugely complex world of which Bobby Banks is quite exceptional <laughs> at doing at doing this. And then you've got um, Anna Belmer, who's a recording mixer. Um, she was in fact the first woman to be nominated for sound mixing and she's worked on um, you know, a whole range of films from Braveheart through Thin Red Line. And again, it's about that, precisely that mixing side so whilst Bobby Banks is making sure the dialogue is absolutely correct in the mix and has you know, been recorded and people can hear it, Anna Belmer is, is how do you mix all of these things together so that you hear um, what the, the, the director wants you to hear at any particular point. One of the real revelations in the documentary, again, for me, was um, the, how key Barbara Streisand was to the development of um, sound in film in stereo, can you believe? Yeah. Um, stereo, because all films were mono up until a certain point, so you'd have just, the speakers would be behind the screen, and they'd be below the screen, or above the screen, or behind the screen, but it, they would be, so the sound was all coming from the front of the auditorium. Barbara Streisand, being a obviously amazing singer, but um, coming from the music side of things, when she was making um, Star is Born, her version of Star is Born with Chris Christopherson, she wanted it to be like a concert, you know, because you'd moved out of the sort of hot, the earlier versions with uh, Judy Garland, James Mason where you know Judy Garland's performing from state this was in a, in a, a kind of more rock concert environment and Barbra Streisand said it needs to sound like it's coming from all around, you know, I want the sound to feel like it's, um, you're, you're immersed in it the studio execs were like, yeah, it'll cost a fortune, so it, it, we don't really need it anyway because, you know, the auditoriums. But she knew that Dolby were developing stereo and the things were happening. So she actually said, I'm, I'll put up a million of my own money. This was way, oh back, way back when, in the 70s. I'll put up a million of my own money oh my to do this in stereo. And they said, well, she's putting up a million. When, you know, do it. So... Star Is Born happened, went out in the cinema, huge success, such a success that the studio exec said to Barbara Streisand, don't worry about the million pounds, you can, you can just gear. <laughs> but she drove through technological change with stereo by, you know, insisting this is what was going to happen. So what happened was the sound, mono-singular coming from the centre, suddenly it expanded and happens all around in the auditorium. You get immersed in it. And then it it goes through to, you know, films like Top Gun, amazing sound that's happening in in Top Gun when you think about it as a immersive experience in the cinema. And then, you know, just all the way through into the present day when sound uh, you know, we're recording this in a, a cinema auditorium where there are speakers all the way around and you know, now we're getting speakers in the the ceilings. So the sound becomes really important and then how you mix that, how you deal with it, how you make sure that everything's clear and the audience gets the experience is, is, there are so many different elements. So as I say, this documentary really delves into that area, celebrates the whole creative part of, you know, making not just music, but sound and the contribution, amazing contribution that women have made in all parts of that process. One final uh, note on it is, of course, (laughs) is, is it talks about Foley. So Foley is a really important part of film. Uh, and Foley is, if you see somebody walking through the snow and you hear the snow, the crunch of the snow, it's not necessarily recorded in where, where it was filmed. Somebody's made that sound by mixing together a whole bunch of ingredients, usually a bit of gravel, a bit of this, a bit of that, and they watch the film and they're crunching through the snow. Or a knife plunges into somebody well that's usually somebody plunging a knife into a watermelon or <laughs> watching it going right <laughs> going. so there's this there's this fantastic world of creating the sounds of things that you see on the screen and it's called foley and it comes from i think his name is james foley although that maybe will be the director but it was this guy called foley who was on the uh, um working on spartacus with stanley kubrick stanley kubrick had filmed these amazing um, scenes in Spartacus of people, the, the troops marching through um, landscape about to um, fight. So epic shots, absolutely epic shots. He watched it um, back in the, the preview studio and he said it, it it sounds like they're carrying pots and pans, it just the sound is just terrible, it's not working. We are going to have to film this again. I can't believe it, we're going to have to film this again. Mr Foley uh, it says to him, Stanley, hang on a second, I think I might have an answer for you. He went back to, he went to his car, got a bunch of keys, and said, well, I think we can work with this. So he had a bunch of keys, did, a, did some recording with it, put it onto to the, the, the images um, that Stanley had just watched. Stanley watched it again and said, oh, it's brilliant. It sounds, it sounds more real. <laughs> so thus, Foley was born, and it is a, a, just an incredibly creative an incredible creative part um as it all is with, with filmmaking, which uses objects to create what you see on screen in that it's a bunch of keys making the sound of a marching um Roman army.
1: That's just amazing. It's incredible, isn't it? It's just so amazing. <laughs>
0: yeah. So that's um what we are up to for for filmmaking. There are um events at um St George's which include uh, a screening of Battleship Potemkin um, with live music, a tribute to Buster Keaton. These these are happening in April. Coaster halls closed at the moment, but are putting on ve- um, events across the city. Uh, and in fact, they're, they're putting on a really great one um, for filmic in Bath at the Forum in Bath, which is the Bournemouth Symphony Orchestra are doing a kind of head to head with the music of Hans Zimmer and the music of John Williams. Um, uh, you, you know, you've got Inception. Um, Inception versus versus Jaws there, wow. um, so that'll be a great. What a what that'll a be <laughs> That'll be a great night. <laughs> so that's filming for this um, month, uh, two months actually, March and April, and you can get more information on those at watershed. Uk. But there are still the first run films that we are going to be opening in March, um, of which we have quite a few.
1: Yes. March is very very busy.
0: Well, the reason March is very very busy is—is <laughs> is, I was saying this to um, somebody last last month—is that the, the Oscars, uh, fantastic parasite, obviously um, having won. Um, but you know, a whole bunch of films that we've all been talking about for all those months leading up. Um, the Oscars, the award season, the BAFTAs, the Oscars, the award season finally finished. Everybody that's got all the other films can finally release, the film, <laughs> release their films. So these are come, some of the films coming up in March.
1: Yes, yes, so one film that I'm really excited about and I saw back in November is um, Brazilian film Bacquerel by Kleber yeah. filo and Giuliano Dorneles, who, who worked together for years on um, on sort of previous films, Aquarius, and
0: I'll just say the on the the, the the they made a short film, brilliant surreal short film called mm. Vino Verde, which when I was programming Encounters Festival screened mm. at Encounters, and it was just wonderfully surreal and off the wall. And I'm so pleased that they've you know gone on to make feature films yeah. that have been really appreciated.
1: Yeah, and there's a lot of really fascinating and really wacky, strange, off the wall stuff coming out of Brazil at the moment, and Bacurau is uh, definitely one of them. Set yep. in a sort of near future Brazil, northeastern corner, and even though it, it's supposed to be the near future, it certainly doesn't feel like that. It's about a small, a woman who returns to her s- small matriarchal village for her grandmother's funeral, a sort of series of very sinister events. Keep happening, namely that they are set upon by a group of American tourists. Well, who who who, who,
0: are, who are hunting tourists? Who, there. Well,
1: yeah, who are hunt? Well, who are there to hunt the village inhabitants? Led, of course, by Udo Keir. And no, it, again,
0: if, if Udo Keir's <laughs> in it, you know something terrible's going to happen.
1: <laughs> well, exactly, he's not exactly um, you know bringer of goodwill. And again, going back to soundtrack, has an absolutely brilliant soundtrack, yeah. used of like John Carpenter and and. It has a real real retro feel to it. You know, Panavision, vision, you sort of side swipes and fade outs and sort of star fade outs, very much sort of a spaghetti Western, but also made me think of sort of early Star Wars, original Star Wars films. And it's really strange, wacky and totally like distinctive filmmaking.
0: Yeah, no, definitely.
1: And also, fans of Udo Kier will be really happy because they've got a double bill with *The Painted Bird*.
0: Oh, of course, that's that, yes, yeah, which will be of coming course.
1: out at the end of March. Which is yeah. um, a Czech film by uh, Václav Mahul, and it's definitely not for the faint-hearted.
0: Well, this is this is the one that um, the, the Guardian critic Zan Brooks um, wrote a review from Venice Film Festival last year. And he gave the the film was given five stars. It was, but he said um, he said I'm glad, I'm really glad I saw it, but I never ever want to see it again. No, um, it's not
1: one that you necessarily rewatch. watch yeah. um,
0: but people were running for the aisles. Let's face it. Yes, they... yes. Yeah, this, yeah. this was a bit probably overstated by um, by a journalist as they like to kind of create those that kind of hype around it. But it's it's as you say, it's not for the faint-hearted. It's a young follows a young boy post around Second World War. And it's really a kind of metaphor, I guess, for just the ravages that happened to Europe in the Second World War. It reminded me of, um, it reminded me of reading Primo Levi's counts of being in um, Auschwitz. Mm. You know, it's got that very authentic sort of feel of a sort of lived experience, but it is a, it's kind of a parable, I guess. And, you know, this young boy um, is a wholly innocent who has to be put through... All sorts of horrors that adults.
1: One thing after another. Yeah, but Um,
0: but I did find it. I did find it quite a stunning piece of European filmmaking, and yeah, pleased to be screening that.
1: Yeah, stunning cinematography, and um, I went to the exhibition to see Don McCullen, the photographer, Mm. his work, and I was thinking, oh, this looks like *The Painted Bird*. These Mm. incredible black and white images, totally bleak, but um, visually very stunning. Yeah.
0: No, it's very, as you say, stark and compelling. This month we've got um, a clutch of directors coming to visit. First up was the Georgian um, the great Georgian film and then we danced.
1: Oh, It's a, a, just a really stunning piece of filmmaking from Levin Akin and we have him We're really lucky to have him coming to Watershed on the 9th of March for a preview screening and a and a set in modern day Tbilisi at a dance company um, and it's you know about a a young very very ambitious and very committed dancer and then a a charismatic and incredibly talented new dancer joins the company sort of a tussle for sort of power but also ultimately is a a love story and is just a really great you know impressive uh, example of what sort of low budget filmmaking and how far you can stretch that.
0: And it's um, it's a a gay love story Mm. which caused huge issues for the filmmaking crew whilst they were making it in, yeah. in Georgia and then also when it was screened you know, because of the the hard conservatism um, in that society and you just see the power of film, power of those stories to still challenge people's uh, conservatism.
1: And then another filmmaker who will be joining us on the 24th of March is Oliver Lacks whose stunning new film Fire Will Come, has been released towards the end of the month and it really is a beautiful piece of filmmaking that is sort of start with sort of dialogue, incredible Galician landscapes, about a man who returns home from prison after committing arson, who's living with his mother in this very very small sort of claustrophobic town, who's, and the woman who plays his mother, who I forgotten her name now, a Goya uh, this year and she's first-time actress and brilliant performances and very very excited that he'll be joining us mm-hmm. this month.
0: So plenty to get your eyes and ears into over March. For more information you go to watershed.co.uk and that's all for this month.